Father, we're grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and to study Your Word. Guide us now and direct us as we do recognize that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, of course, that we might become more like our Lord and Savior. For I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So now we're ready to consider the subject of divorce. Divorce has always presented a serious problem. It's important that pastor teachers teach what the Bible has to say about marriage and divorce. And in the earliest teaching of the Bible, man and woman were to marry and stay together, refraining from sexual relations with any other. Anything other than monogamy was forbidden. But mankind, being what mankind was and in fact is, has found staying married a difficult task. So given mankind's wayward nature, God authorized divorce. And the old statement statement is, there before the grace of God go I. Uh, survival in marriage sometimes takes uh, a great deal of effort, but in addition to that, it takes also the Lord's grace. So I guess I would say, what family has not been touched with divorce? Sometime in mine, you know, two or three times. <laughs> my, my brother was a professional at it, as a, uh, but uh, he finally saw the light, as they say. Alright, men began to have multiple wives and concubines. Women were often divorced and family problems prevailed. Even kings were not spared incest, rape, murder, family, rebellion, etc. And all because they didn't heed God's call for monogamy. So the New and the Old Testaments are replete with accounts of misadventures in marriage. Christ in His kingdom teachings explained that God permitted divorce only because of the hardness of man's heart, and He further added that the only grounds for divorce was adultery. And then the Lord expanded His teaching about adultery and fornication by saying if a man lusted in his heart for a woman, he was guilty, guilty of adultery. If he murder, or excuse me, if he's married... And uh, that, uh, of course, fornication if he wasn't. So this then complicated everything for what, again, as I've said on many occasions, what healthy red-blooded male could avoid adultery and or fornication by that definition. Now, fortunately, the epistles urge mankind to attack all sin in the privacy of the mind by using 1 John 1, 9. Of course, you know, confession or citing sin back to God as the Holy Spirit shows. The epistles, however, also stress the heinous nature of sexual sins because sexual sins affect both the body and the soul of the believer. All right, seven husbands, but no husband. So, all right, the body, said Paul, is the temple of the Holy Spirit and therefore it was blasphemous to think of the body being joined to a harlot. A not so kindly description of a sexual union between two people, between the two people outside of marriage. 
and the harlot there actually is talking about somebody other than your right woman. All right, so much for an introduction to the subject of divorce. It was only because of the hardness of men's hearts that Moses allowed a bill of divorcement. But such was not, says our Lord, the original plan. And we have him giving us several verses from the Gospels, which we will look at, 531 and 32 in the book of Matthew. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. And then in Matthew 19, 18 and verse 9, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. And then Mark 10, 2, reading through verse 8, excuse me, verse 9, some Pharisees came and tested our Lord by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And then Luke. Anyone who divorces his wife, said Luke in Luke sixteen eighteen, and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So marriage is to be abolished only by Meritable unfaithfulness. This, that's as far as the gospels are concerned. Alright, this means that a divorce, and we'll get to the rest of the Bible as we proceed. This means that a divorce could be allowed only when there had been sexual intercourse with another person other than the betrothed, either in premarital sex or afterward in marriage. And I remember <coughs> Rosa, Rosalie Schiller, said, uh, you know, when if you read the Bible and you went with everything that was in the Bible, there wouldn't be any marriages at all. <laughs> and uh, you have to know Rosa to know what a dry sense of humor, wonderful sense of humor she had. Uh, Christ pointed out that a man could commit adultery just as well as a woman by forcing an unjust divorce. This was contrary to the views of the Jews who saw the woman as the only possible offender. There are several interesting metaphors using marriage to teach various subjects. I want to take one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. The Old Testament. Hosea forgave and took back his adulterous adulterous wife, whose name was Gomer, because God commanded. Not once, but twice. And each time it was to remind the prophet, Hosea, 
and us of God's love for Israel and his future family. A synopsis of the events will suffice. I think we can learn from this. It's a very interesting story and very uh, uh, educational, teaching us how much God loved us. And so, to illustrate a synopsis, Hosea 1, beginning in verse 1, we'll read through verse 3 and then drop down to verse 5 in chapter 2. It says, and you can read the whole story, of course, but this will get you the gist. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery and departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, Verse 5 of chapter 2, she said, I will go after my lovers who give me food and my water and my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. She will chase after her lovers. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. Alright, Hosea 2.10, God said, I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. Chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So Hosea accepted God's plan. The Lord used the analogy to teach the era of Israel and God's ever-present unrequited love for His people just to show them and us how much He loves us and how sad He is when we go a-whoring, so to speak, which simply means become involved in sin and evil uh, rather than what He would have for us to do. So now we're ready to re- for a review of a most interesting metaphor. Christ the Bridegroom and the Church the Bride. Introduction. Well, first I want to preview the differences between marriage today and the institution of marriage which existed at the time of Christ and the early church. And I started this study many, many years ago, but only when I was up at the Hills Fitness Center working out, and there was a Pakistani gal there. And somehow, some way, uh, I got into a conversation with her, and it turned out that she, as in most Muslim countries, had had a marriage that had been arranged. And uh, it uh, the way it worked there, and Pakistan was that uh, it was done by telephone. Her husband was here in the U.S. He was a, a sporting goods importer, exporter. And so he called and talked to her dad and they worked out the dowry. And so they got married and uh, they were married and had a happy marriage, it seemed. And when I said something about, that's awfully strange the way you folks do that. And she said, well, it's a lot better than the way you all do it because our marriages last a long time. (laughs) And I thought, well, probably so. Who knows, you know. 
Okay, so uh, it did, though, cause me to get into the Bible about this, how, how it was way back when. So I put together this doctrine. So let's take a look at it. First of all, an introduction. First, I want to preview the differences between marriage today and the institution of marriage which existed at the time of Christ and the early church. Most of you know about marriage today. You find your right man or right woman, go down to the courthouse, get a license, find a preacher or a JP, and have them say a few words over the deal, and bingo, as our president-elect would say, bingo, you're married. Of course, he said it a little differently. I think he was talking about guns at that time. Bingo, I'm going to take your guns away from you. But again, we had the Second Amendment, so we don't have to worry. All right, I was quite different. No, excuse me, I was quite different. It was quite different in antiquity. Marriages were arranged. Often the groom would find a girl to his liking, enlist the help of a friend, and then a negotiation took place with the father of the bride. The bridegroom's friend would act as the bridegroom's agent. The agent would go to the home of the young lady, speak with the parents, and a deal would be struck. The dowry in most cases would be exchanged and promised, and thus a marriage contract was recognized. The dower being paid, of course, from the the, the uh, soon-to-be husband kind of deal, or ultimate husband, to the dad of the bride. So as part of the marriage contract, the groom agreed at some undetermined time to come for his bride. The groom would first acquire a house and all that was needed for a secure home. And that was to be part of the discussion as they talked about the dowry. The bride, in our metaphor, is the universal church of the church age. And the bridegroom is Christ. Christ is at this moment building a home in heaven for us as his future bride. In other words, the deal would be struck, but the ceremony would not be held. Or the intimacy. But rather you go off and you get you a job and you get a nice home and then you come for my daughter. And then she'll go with you. And you could either transact the deal, you know, give the money to me now, or you can promise to give the money after the whole deal's done. Could be a promise to pay, like a, any contract. Consideration could be a promise, or a consideration could be the actual transfer. So the bride in our metaphor, again, is the universal church of the church age, and the bridegroom is Christ. Christ is at this moment building a home in heaven for us, for us as his future bride. All right, so it's a... That's the way it was done. There were some subtle differences, as we're going to see. Uh, like the Muslims, uh, generally speaking, don't even get to see the face in the strict Muslims country because it's a head, and so they're not looking for anything. Was it true in the in in the Jews, for example? We know that Jacob went and he saw this gal, beautiful gal, Rachel. Riding a horse. She comes up. Cowgirl. And uh, he says, Woo, she's a dandy. You know, and uh, from there on, you'll remember the story. He had to work and work and work. And he got Leah and then he got uh, Rachel finally. But the, Leah 
it's kind of like one-upmanship. She had the first four. And one of them was Christ, the lineage, first force. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. All were from Leah. And it was a long time before Rachel ever got two, and that was the last two. You remember? Joseph Benjamin. Alright, our agent is the Holy Spirit, and the undetermined period is the length of the church age. And here's a chart, simple, oversimplified chart. Asia the Gentile, age of Israel, hypostatic union when Christ was on the earth, the cross, the church age, the rapture of the church, the tribulation, and the second advent in the millennium. And we have on both sides of the chart the eternity past, eternity future. And uh, it's oversimplified, but it is done for the purpose of simplification. All right, as was the marriage custom of Christ's day, we too as the bride now wait until our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, is ready to take us to his home in heaven. The shout of our Lord and the blast from the trumpet of God will signal the bridegroom's readiness. We, as the bride, are to wait expectantly for the call of the bridegroom. And again, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, 17. Actually, you start with 14, 15, and makes a little better sense, but it says, For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, that would be the generation who is on the earth, who are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So the eminency of the rapture is certainly portrayed there when he said, then we who are alive and remain. He expected the rapture. Uh, or he anticipated certainly eminency in many verses later, but it could happen any time. Now let's look further at how the Bible uses the analogy of Christ the bridegroom and the bride the church. So the metaphor is first used by John the Baptist or John the Baptizer in John three twenty six through twenty nine. John is the agent of the Messiah Jesus, the bridegroom, and Israel is the potential bride. Unfortunately, Israel will not accept the proposal made by John, and thus there it is at this point no marriage. There was an offer but no acceptance. John 3, verse 26, reading through verse 29. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, meaning teacher, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. So he was convinced he had the Christ. He was convinced because he had unequivocal 
uh, sign. God had told him. Remember I told you you have to go to search the scripture categorically to see that, but he was told by God that uh, this is the one you will see when this happens. In other words, when you hear a voice from heaven and you see the sign of the Holy Spirit, then you'll know you got the right one. But until then, you won't know who it is. So we can just kind of imagine him baptizing people and listening, baptizing people and listening, baptizing another one and listening, on and on and on. And then it happened and he said, it's him, it's him, you know. Uh, reminds me of the, one of the, it's clear, it's clear. Alright, now let's go on. Whitcliffe in his Bible encyclopedia has the following to say about John 3, 26 through 29. Now, John makes clear early on that he is not the bridegroom. Rather, he makes clear he is a friend of the bridegroom. It was the function of such a man to act as a go-between in making the marriage arrangements. This is the way it is still done in many Muslim nations. Example earlier given, Pakistan. A friend, an agent, will contact the family of the prospective bride and discussions will ensue and then in many cases a meeting is set up under a most controlled situation. Usually the meeting is short and casual. After the first meeting, many marriages are then arranged. John was such an agent for Israel, he introduced them to their Messiah. So our agent who arranges our marriage is not John the Baptist, but the Holy Spirit of God. So we as believers of the church age, unlike Israel, accepted the proposal of marriage communicated by the Holy Spirit And we, as the bride of Christ, are now waiting for our bridegroom to come and take us to his home. I know uh, Tommy said, uh, you might make the point here that John the Baptist had a difficulty. Now he saw things that we don't get to see. He actually saw and heard. He saw the sign of the Spirit in the form of a dove. He saw also like a dove. And he heard the voice of God saying, this is it. But under pressure, what did he do? Under the pressure of being put in prison, under the pressure of ultimately getting decapitated, he doubted. And he, when the disciples came to him, Jesus told them, go tell him what I, go tell him what I do. Cause he's asking the question, is Jesus the Messiah? So when things go south, if you will, uh, sometimes we get in situations like that, but we're in good company, so to speak. But I'm sure he was overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit to help him out in this situation because he's always faithful. One thing we can count on is the Holy Spirit being faithful. Are we as... Believers of the church age, unlike Israel, accepted the proposal of marriage communicated by the Holy Spirit. And we as the bride of Christ are now waiting for our bridegroom to come and take us to his home. Now let's see what we can learn from John 4, 20-26. And I shall read. Our fathers worship in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. 
Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. This is a Syrophoenician woman. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. Then he said, God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto Him, she's heard the story, I know the Messiah, the Messias cometh, which is called Christ. When He is come, He will tell us all things. Then Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am He. What a marvelous, in, certainly, indication that Jesus did declare, I'm the Messiah. Alright, I think the best way to study these verses is to study the doctrine of God, the Supreme Christ. So here we go. Christ came to rule over every square inch of the universe. Not part, not portions, all. He was, he has always been there. Never was a time when he was not supreme. John 1, 1 through 1, 5 makes that clear. In the beginning was the word, in arche, which is the word for in the beginning, like in the Hebrew it's bereshit. And the word was with God. And the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. So the declaration in those first five verses, He's always been, He always was, and He keeps on being. And nothing was made that was made except he was part and parcel of that process. Now we drop down to verse 11 of chapter 1 and we get who is the Word. Well, he, the Word, came unto his own, that would be Israel, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, grace and doctrine. Now, excuse me, from what we have Learned or what we learn from Scripture, there is nothing more glorious than knowing that Christ reigns over every creature and over every power in creation. And that includes presidents and that includes all authorities in the land. So much of the Christian life is discovering and savoring the fundamental truth Everything hangs on Christ and His plan for all things. Much of what we stress in this local church is first discovering and then daily rediscovering and 
re-savoring the truth that everything hangs on Jesus Christ. And we know from Romans 8.28 that all things do indeed work together for our good. But I think we need to study a little more. And therefore I like to review, I would like to review the doctrine of the prayer formula. Introduction. The purpose of this doctrine is to strengthen your understanding of how powerful and successful are a believer's prayers. Additionally, it should also remind you, us, of the important role of God the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus in our daily lives. There is a divine process for even the most insouciant believer. Now for the formula. The problem. We know not about what to pray. Romans chapter 8 verse 26. The first part of the verse. In the same way. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray. Problem resolution. A divine prayer. The Holy Spirit is said to intercede and pray for us. John 8, 26, second half of that verse. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. The divine presentation that occurs then is God is delighted to receive a perfect prayer from God the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 27a. And Christ who searches our hearts knows the perfect mind of the Spirit. There's nothing imperfect about the Spirit, so He knows. Perfection personified. Now the result. The Father accepts the perfect prayer and provides a perfect answer and plan for the same believer who earlier did not know about what to pray. Thus, the result. Romans 8.28 And we know that all things work together for the good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. So just as we are saved by grace, we also must live by grace. What is grace? Well, according to our B theme, it's all that God is free to do for you and me on the basis of the cross without in any way compromising His integrity. Jesus really did pay it all. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So in times like these, where most Americans despise God's four divine institutions, volition, marriage, family, and nationalism, there is a need for review. Introduction. The four divine institutions are volition, marriage, family, and nationalism. Volition. Capsule. Free to choose. Free to succeed. Free to fail. Choice, in other words. And we see it on television every day. People are telling other people, other groups of people, you're not what you are because what you decide. You are what other people have made you. It's not your fault. But that's not what God has given us in the way of the first divine institution, volition, choice. You are responsible. 
Alright, then marriage. Leave and cleave. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, obey your very own husbands. Family. Father, mother, children. And then nationalism, the last of the four. Governments must implement policies which provide unfettered protection for each of these institutions if the nation is to prosper. And I might even say survive. In the case of volition, a nation must support and maximize freedom. Freedom to succeed and freedom to fail. Thus a minimum amount of government will maximize freedom and promote volition. If a nation wants to have stability and longevity, the nation will support marriage between a man and a woman. The man must be the leader in the home and the woman is the subordinate and helpmeet. This is marriage and not shacking up as was the custom in the formative years of our baby boomers and now our millennials. A practice so common and justified under the mistaken premise that the Bible doesn't require a piece of paper. Just sincerity. Many a woman has learned sincerity was rather short-lived. The Bible in both the Old and New Testaments Testament has always taught marriage. And there is a Greek word, gamos, meaning the civil ceremony of marriage. God often used, I'm sorry, Christ often used the analogy of himself as the groom and the believers of the church age as the bride of Christ, as we've just studied. Psalm 128, 3 and 4, Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. Psalm 128, 4, Thus is the man blessed who fears the Lord. 128, 3 and then 128, 4. Hebrews 13.4 Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Family is a basic unit in the scripture going back as far as the period of the patriarchs. And that of course was when the family head, the patriarch, was to teach the members of the family. It was his job to see to it that family attended first the synagogue the family attended first service at the tabernacle, later the temple, and then much later the synagogue. The family is the fabric upon which the ensign of civility is woven. The man is to lead and support the woman, and the two of them are to demand obedience from the children, and the children are to be disciplined. For what father does not discipline his children, says the scripture? Proverbs 13.24 He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. The fourth divine institution, nationalism. Nationalism is a foundation upon which good limited government should be built. Believers living in this, living in this country should love and support the United States of America and desire its prosperity with undying loyalty. We must show no loyalty to any other organization, be it the United Nations or some foreign power. We also, however, should want other people in other nations to love their country with a nationalistic fervor. Bible-believing Americans should want their other nations, want other nations to be independent and prosperous. 
but never at the expense of the United States of America. We must never give up our sovereignty. This is God's program and God's plan. And remember Isaiah fourteen twelve tells us it is Satan who desires to weaken the nations. Satan's first impotent attempt at internationalism was the Tower of Babel. Politicians have ever since devised schemes to usurp nationalism. All such attempts are wrapped in the noblest of blankets and given euphemistic names. Proponents of internationalism have deluded themselves into believing that by putting, excuse me, uniting as one, they could eliminate wars. It was General George S. Patton who noticed that madmen, like criminals, don't follow either international or national laws. I think his quote was, we will always have wars because world, the world, has no shortage of madmen. Now let me again give you a listing of each institution with brief comment. Volition. This institution was promulgated in the garden as a mechanism for resolving the angelic conflict. God could have made us all believers, but He didn't. John 1.12, Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, and whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Acts 16.31, they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Ephesians 2.89, For it is by grace that you are saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, so that no man can boast. Marriage. This institution is designed to protect the weaker vessel and the children of the marriage. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 5.31 For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Psalm 128.3 Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house and your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. Hebrews 13.4 Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Family. The family is an organization of the husband as the chairman of the board and the wife is the president and chief operating officer. Children are precious assets worthy of discipline, training, love, and protection. Deuteronomy 6, 6, and 7 gives us a... Excuse me. Gives us what should happen. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Exodus 20.12 Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. 1 Timothy 5.8 If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 
First Timothy 5, 4, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents. For this is pleasing to God. Nationalism is an institution provided by God to protect people with certain geographical boundaries or within certain geographical boundaries. According to the scriptures, the borders were uniquely established for the needs of Israel. Genesis 10.5 By these were the borders of the nations divided in their lands. Everyone after his tongue, after families in their nations. Genesis 11.5-17 But the Lord came down to see the city and what they were doing and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. And again, as we read earlier, Isaiah fourteen twelve, how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth and you who weakened the nations. And Deuteronomy 32, 8, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when He divided all mankind, He set up boundaries for the peoples again according to the number of the sons of Israel. And we'll pick up and see how the divine institutions relate to God's divine decrees. Next week, the Lord's willing and the creek doesn't rise. And again, I apologize for last week going over. But this one, I came right on. Alright, let us pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come together and to again do some review about things in general, but particularly what we find in our book of John. So go with us now and please be with our country. We got a whole mess of things going on, Father. And it is only you who can unscramble scrambled eggs. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.